Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. In 1992, it seemed like there were two types of rockers, those that were from Seattle and those that wished they were. First, Nirvana's Nevermind was everywhere. Radio, MTV, magazines. Then came the full-bore Seattle invasion as bands like Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, and Temple of the Dog became part of the rising tide for a total takeover of popular culture. Seattle had become the center of the musical universe and everybody wanted a piece of it. The sound, the look, the vibe. The world was wolfing it down and swallowing it whole without hesitation. Seattleites themselves were dealing with a bundle of mixed emotions. Excitement and disbelief were part of the deal, but plenty of locals were already feeling wary about what was happening to what had, until just recently, been their own little world. 1077 The End, KNDDDJ, Marco Collins. It was strange when things blew up. It felt very surreal. It felt like, man, we're a small town, but to the rest of the world, we look massive. Part of the world's view of the Seattle scene in 92 was informed by the movie Singles, Cameron Crowe's follow-up to his hugely successful directorial debut, Say Anything. The Seattle music scene is about to invade the glittering streets of Hollywood. Seattle is hitting the big screen in the new film Singles, and The End is celebrating with a three-day Singles weekend. Like his first film, it was basically a romantic comedy, but it was set against the backdrop of the Seattle music scene. The movie features club segments with Soundgarden and Alice in Chains, plenty of sub-pop t-shirts, and cameos by members of Pearl Jam, local hero Tad Doyle, and even sub-pop co-owner Bruce Pavitt. One of the main characters, played by Matt Dillon, is the flannel-clad, long-haired leader of fictional grunge band Citizen Dick, whose signature song is Mudhoney's grunge anthem, Touch Me, I'm Sick, hilariously repurposed as Touch Me, I'm Dick. Touch me, I'm Dick! Mark Yarm, author of Everybody Loves Our Town, A History of Grunge. 
singles was well underway before the whole Seattle explosion. In fact, it was the Seattle explosion that allowed that movie to even be released and like, you know, might've just been put on a shelf had that, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam not hit it big. The first public performance of Smells Like Teen Spirit, which was at the OK Hotel in, in 91. At the same time that Nirvana was performing that, they were shooting singles across the way. In some ways, that movie was very prescient. The music parts and all the cameos, that's why I think it is a grunge classic. It's not a great movie per se, but it is a great time capsule. Seattle DJ Kathy Fennessy. A lot of local folks ended up in it. I wasn't one of them, but certainly I recognized a lot of people I knew, just people on the scene. But yeah, it wasn't seen like as a very accurate assessment of, of much of what was going on here, even though it was definitely filmed on location. You could tell. I think the movie itself wasn't seen as great as a movie in and of itself and even as a reflection of the scene. But I think he was doing the best he could. And Cameron Crowe deserves credit because he ended up directing a documentary about Pearl Jam. So he obviously was meeting some of these folks even back then. And that Pearl Jam 20 is really good. Easy Street Records proprietor Matt Vaughn. When singles came through and Cameron Crowe came through, you know, everyone was a buzz on that, trying to get a bit part in it and different coffee shops and venues be part of the movie. But it was also double-edged in that, okay, now we're being put on this grandiose scale and it's not just our little thing anymore. And of course, then the movie comes out and it's a fun movie and it's great. I still watch it. And Cameron Crowe's heart is certainly in the right place. And he had all the jargon down and Matt Dillon was fantastic in it. But, you know, it, it wasn't our little scene anymore. Debbie Lippitz was working for Epic Records, who released the single soundtrack featuring Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden, Mudhoney, Mother Love Bone and more. Radio station contestants got to be in the crowd scenes. So, you know, it was pure mania. I mean, you would have grunge tours taking you by the house where they all lived on Capitol Hill and, you know, just the scenes of where these bands played. I mean, it was pretty crazy. And Cameron Crowe came up here and presented the films. He spoke before the premieres. We were also in the soundtrack business, and it was a very successful album. It was a great album. One band that benefited hugely from singles was Screaming Trees, whose Nearly Lost You became their breakthrough hit, thanks largely to the soundtrack. Another was Mudhoney, who reaped rewards of a more immediately remunerative kind. Mudhoney kind of finagled their way into being on that soundtrack. They accepted a rather large sum for it and only recorded for like 200 bucks or something like that. So Mark Arm, the singer of Mudhoney, was able to buy a house with that money. So. It worked out pretty well for them. Pearl Jam was a big part of the film, but at that point, their juggernaut certainly didn't need an extra push, especially not on the home front, where their music was the impetus for all sorts of behind-the-scenes drama. Marco Collins. 
The end leaked a lot of records. We were the first to play a lot of different records, whether it was illegal or not. And it was just more fun when it was illegal. I got to be honest with you. It was fun getting cease and desist orders. It was fun having record labels come to the station, bribe the security guy to get in and try to kick open the front door to stop us from playing Pearl Jam. And I think you've interviewed somebody about that. (laughs) I don't know. Debbie Lippitz is the person that tried to kick in the door because we were leaking Pearl Jam. I had my life threatened by one of the program directors who called my boss and said, you better get Debbie Lippitz a bodyguard because I'm going to blow her head off. She said I'd get the premiere. We'd have to hide the records at the radio station so one didn't think that the other got it first. I would call and say, it's in the girl's bathroom under the tampon box. Or we'd have to mail it. In those days, you could actually put it on a Horizon flight as small cargo and then say, all right, go pick it up at the airport. But you know what would happen? The program directors would send someone to go to the Horizon small package counter and pick up all of them so no one would get them. KISW DJ, Kathy Faulkner. If I'm being followed home every night to find out where I'm going, to where I have to have police escorts because I might have Pearl Jam tickets on my person. I mean, I was a night DJ in Seattle, for God's sake. Surprise shows were notorious in Seattle. So there was this like rabid people coming to town to try and find out where they might be playing. So if I'm experiencing that, I can only imagine on what exponential level a Kurt Cobain or a Chris Cornell or, you know, an Eddie Vedder was experiencing. Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thile. I don't think any of us were inviting that. I know that I wasn't. I think success meant great record reviews. And at this point now, success meant I can buy a car. You know, I can buy a house. And that was kind of cool. It's like, this. I guess this is my job. I guess this is my career. It was something I did as a hobby, as an amateur, for love. And now it looks like this is what I'm going to be when I grow up because it somehow happened. But it's hard to anticipate or understand all those other things that come with it. You kind of know it from reading biographies of successful people growing up, you know, or stories about other rock bands. Some people eat it up. They love it. And I I always thought that there's got to be something one-dimensional about this guy. Is he all hot tubs and cocaine and girls? or what? Is, is that really why he loves this? Or is he just selling his lifestyle to us for some commercial purpose? Because I'm not interested. And then we get successful, and it's like, you don't change as much as people around you change. The, what they expect of you, or how they might see you. Everything from seeing you as perhaps a resource or a benefit, or perhaps developing resentments you know, or bitterness because of your success. And none of it is anything that you apply to the relationship, but it's all things that are now defining changes in your, in your social life. So it, it's weird. You are listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle. The story of the scene that defined rock in the 90s. The celebrity phenomenon was as much of a shock to Seattle's newly minted rock stars as it was to anyone else. 
but they all responded differently. Pearl Jam eventually reacted by pulling back from the fray. Kurt Cobain dealt with Nirvana's newfound celebrity in part by decrying it in the press, but he had a complicated relationship with fame, to say the least. Mark Yarm. I talked to Danny Goldberg, who was Nirvana's manager, and he said that Kurt Cobain used to, when the MTV was playing Pearl Jam's video and Nirvana's video, like if he saw that they were playing Pearl Jam's video more, he, you know, would call up his manager and complain. So there was a certain level of wanting it, but not wanting it. Obviously, he totally wanted to be a star, but he totally didn't. If you think back to that time, it was very uncool to sell out, to become popular. Being on the cover of Rolling Stone, they did it. They did it but Kurt wore a snotty t-shirt that said, you know, corporate rock magazines still suck. So he was kind of having it both ways. Cobain biographer and rocket editor Charles Cross. He wanted to play it both ways. He wanted to be a rock star, have that power, but he wanted to act. I I think I I once described it as as if it were an accidental fame, that I didn't really try to get this famous. But as we know, knowing his life, and I know researching his papers, nobody ever wanted to be famous more than Kurt Cobain. Going so far as to rehearse what he was going to say in interviews years before he had those interviews. And Kurt somehow managed to, to get away with this idea that He'd do interviews and bitch about how famous he was. And nobody brought up the absurdity of that. I I think nowadays, the way the media works now, if you were on CNN saying, I shouldn't be this famous, uh, somebody might ask you, why the heck are you on CNN? But in Kurt's era, those questions were just assumed that, yes, he was the unfortunate rock star. Well, he wanted that level of success. There was also no shortage of other musicians who wanted Nirvana's level of success. And after Grunge's Big Bang, they descended on Seattle in droves, either bringing their bands with them or starting new ones, all looking for a piece of the action. Seattle DJ Mark Iverson. We were in our 20s and all of a sudden all these other people started moving to Seattle in their 20s and going to shows. And it wasn't as fun because before when you would go to shows, it was almost like a party because you'd be going back and you'd be seeing your same friends every time. It was fun because, you know, you made friends that way. After that, it felt diluted. The clubs got bigger. Uh, there was a certain amount of pretension, I believe. And, you know, it felt like the bands that were being put out on major labels and those who were marketed to sound like the Seattle bands were largely not as good. You know, you started going to shows less often because the Mudhoney shows were getting bigger. I remember going to a Melvin show and it was just all these metalhead dickheads. Skinyard member and CZ Records owner Daniel House. When all of that attention is being laid at the feet of this particular music scene was great on the one hand, because I could put out a record by a completely unknown Seattle band and sell five or 6,000 just out of the gate. But that innocence had been lost. We weren't a small organic scene anymore. You know, you'd go to shows. Most of the people at shows were people you'd never seen and didn't know. So it's certainly was helpful to the scene, but the whole thing felt like cultural gentrification in a way. Everybody wanted to be part of this thing that had happened in relative obscurity and in a totally organic fashion. And now there was no way that that could be like that anymore. Hammerbox singer Carrie Ockrey. It dilutes the original scene because at some point the original people are moving on to do other things or they're on tour, right? Like, so whoever started initially isn't there anymore. 
like just physically, they either these bands are like on tour, they're gone, like they're on to their another level or they're busy or whatever. So the original scene is not the same. And now that the whole place is getting diluted by a bunch of new people. So it felt kind of like that. Like it's not the original core anymore. And that's natural. I think everybody knew this isn't going to last forever. This is a moment in time. Nothing lasts forever. It was no breeze being on the music industry side of the fence at that point either. Promoter Jeff Trisler worked with Pearl Jam, but he was also trying to bring other Seattle bands along. Well, I had to work doubly hard because now it wasn't just a matter of recognizing who was hot and who was happening and who the people wanted to see, but trying to break into a club that had cast me on the outside. No, you're the promoter that does those bands. We're these bands, and we're going to work with these guys. Well... It was all fine and good for a while until they realized that there were some of those promoters that were able to elevate their game and move on to the next level. Karaoke. Seattle's very anti, it was very punk rock in the way it was like anti-success. I mean, Nirvana, Rolling Stone cover. Everyone's sort of like, fuck the man, you know? I mean, it was really embedded in the culture there. And so when it started happening, I think a lot of those bands didn't think it was going to be an option. Now it's an option. Now it's happening. I don't think that's necessarily was a good thing for any one of those bands. It wasn't only the music that was being commodified, though. Even the look of Seattle bands, which came about naturally in the Northwest, became part of the marketplace, repackaged and resold at a shockingly high price point as grunge fashion. Marco Collins. It felt weird, man. I remember when the stores started carrying grunge fashion. I remember walking by, I think it was the Fred Meyer, and they had window displays of flannel and this is before nordstrom this is when we knew stuff was getting weird they put all those like ghetto lumberjack clothes that everybody wore thrift store stuff in the front windows with doc martens and even seattle started buying its own hype charles cross the flannel shirt, grunge wear, the fact that people started buying girls' deodorant, teen spirit deodorant, you know, those kind of elements were just beyond absurd. The Perry Ellis $450 flannel shirts, by the time all that happened, everybody in Seattle began to be cynical about it. So it was kind of like, go away, leave us alone. Kathy Faulkner. You can love it to death and you can absolutely suffocate the very essence that drew you to that music in the first place. You know, it, it just put a really bad taste in my mouth watching New York Fashion Week <laughs> wearing Eddie Vedder jackets and flannel that we would buy at thrift store. I mean, it just got silly and the bands couldn't escape it. We've paid huge prices in our community, both in loss and in how the dynamics of this community has changed. Karaoke. When you've got runway models wearing flannel or any of those things where completely outsiders are talking about you or telling you how it is or whatever, you're like, we're fucked. It's all done. <laughs> I mean, like now it's gross. You can have the burnt embers that are left over. Feel free. I'm out of here. Duff McKagan of Guns N' Roses saw through the hype to the heart of the matter. It doesn't take anything away from Nirvana or Pearl Jam or Alice in Chains or Soundgarden, you know, or Screaming Trees. If you can keep making great music through that big surge of popularity to where it's almost ridiculous, but you keep making great music, it doesn't matter, you know. I think that that shined right through all that big thing, you know. 
In early 93, Nirvana was powering their way through the sessions for In Utero. For a producer, they'd picked Steve Albini, who had worked with the Jesus Lizard, Tad, the Pixies, and a ton of others, and was famous for getting a raw, no-nonsense sound, not unlike what Nirvana got from Jack and Dino for Bleach. Egged on by Albini's take-no-prisoners approach, they blazed through the entire album in about two weeks. No sooner did they finish than Pearl Jam got busy making verses. Like Nirvana, they were trying to find a way to follow up a monolithic success while still smarting from the overexposure. In Utero and Verses were both released that fall. Each seemed, at least in part, like a middle finger raised up in the face of fame, each one more raw, more organic, and more unpredictable than its game-changing predecessor. Marco Collins. They made the art that they wanted to make, and they had the power to do it. Do you think their labels were happy all the time with the singles that they had chosen? No. But... They did it anyway, and to me, it really helped define the scene. And I applaud both of those bands for standing up to the expectations of the world and doing what they wanted to do. In stark contrast to Nevermind's months-long slog to the top, In Utero went straight in at number one. The singles Heart Shaped Box and All Apologies had the hooky appeal of the previous album's hits, but also bore a more in-your-face tonal quality. You felt like you were in the room when Cobain's amp roared and Dave Grohl's drumsticks came walloping down. The first couplet of the opening track Serve the Servants was, Teenage Angst Has Paid Off Well, Now I'm Bored and Old. There was no mistaking the band's perspective as Kurt's blood-curdling shrieking on the next track, Scentless Apprentice, immediately neutralized any concerns of over-commercialization. Marco Collins. I liked the fact that In Utero was an angry punk rock record produced by a punk rock producer. <laughs> I liked the rebellion in it. I liked the fact that Kurt didn't want to embrace the fame that he wanted to prove something. I thought it was brilliant. I thought In Utero was the perfect fuck you to commercialism, because that record is not a commercial record by any means, by one of the biggest bands of all time. Charles Cross. Nirvana was trying with In Utero to respond to the fame of Nevermind and kind of trying to do a punk raw record. In fact, one of the controversies with the record is that they wanted it to sound rougher. Like Nirvana, Pearl Jam wasn't going out of their way to court success. But when Versus was released, they didn't need any assistance in attracting attention. It became their first number one album, and Daughter was their first song ever to top any singles chart. The album opener, Go, was the most unrelenting rocker Pearl Jam had produced yet. But the overall feel of Versus is that of a band doing whatever the hell they want. Be it the feral funk of rats, or the spare acoustic strumming of elderly women behind the counter in a small town. Marco Collins. The second and third Pearl Jam records, to me, are still some of the best records of the 90s. I wasn't a big fan of 10. I thought it was overproduced, and McCready says I told him that I thought it sounded like bad company. I don't remember being that much of a dick to him, but 
The second and third Pearl Jam records helped define the Seattle sound in a lot of ways. I love the fact that Pearl Jam also stepped away from their commercialism and became way less produced and way more in control over their destiny. These bands released massive albums and then about faced and made creative artistic records from that point on. That's hard to do. Name bands who have put out massive records and then said, nope, nope, nope. We're not going to be that commercial. There's not that many bands that have done this. But while Seattle's favorite sons were pushing the envelope and redefining their identities, back at home, a lot of their old friends were struggling and some wound up falling by the wayside. For instance, nobody embodied the idea of grunge more than Seattle OG's Tad, the fearsomely sludgy wrecking crew fronted by Tad Doyle. They were one of many bands destined to be chewed up and spit out by the same music business machinery that had elevated a few of their brethren. Charles Cross. If there's one band that I would say should have made it bigger, it was Tad. They were many times better on stage than some of the other bands that now we consider all-time legends. Matt Vaughn. Tad was fantastic, and when you think of grunge, it doesn't really get much grungier than Tad. But they had three different lawsuits within a three-year period that really kind of shut them down. Marco Collins. It's interesting. I had a conversation with Chris Novoselic about grunge and what grunge actually sounded like. And we both agreed that Nirvana didn't sound like grunge. Pearl Jam didn't sound like grunge. It was Tad. Uh, It was dirty. It was low. It was drop D chords. It was grungy. I love him. I love Tad. He didn't give a fuck. Daniel House. In my mind, Tad is just sheer pummeling bliss. As Karen Mason Blair recalls, another of the unsung local heroes was Grunt Truck. I could go into like 10 other local bands right now that would blow your mind that were at that exact same level that musicians absolutely honor and adore and still remember to this day that did not break or make it. Everybody, and I'm talking Soundgarden, I'm talking Pearl Jam, we all love Grunt Truck. But that record company that they signed to ended up going bankrupt. But the point is, is that they didn't restock the album. Grunt Truck had all this amazing potential, but because people would go to the store and couldn't get the product, it didn't perpetuate their success. And that has to do with the business, not with the music at all. Matt Vaughn. Grunt Truck is probably the one that comes to mind for most people that were steeped in the Seattle scene. They were seminal in that two of the guys were in a band called Skin Yard. They formed kind of a side project that took off locally, and Allison Chains brought them out on tour. Kelly Curtis and Susan Silver both thought that a band like that would kind of give Alice a little bit more street cred, and I helped them out as much as I could on my end. But they had kind of a a weird record deal with an indie, and it was hard for them to get out of it. Blacktone's frontwoman and KEXP DJ Eva Walker points out that there was also a black rock contingent in Seattle, which went unrecognized. 
there's this band Image, all black band, early 90s band. Love them, did a whole story about them for Sound and Vision for KXP. I think we titled it The Black Grunge Band You Probably Never Heard Of. The story I've heard from Image is at that time there were record labels who had, for lack of a better term, quotas as far as like black bands. They'd be like, well, we already got our black bands, so, you know, we can have another one. And you have bands like Bam Bam that was fronted by Tina Bell, black woman. And I'm sure there was plenty more. So if I talk about inclusion or people being left out, like I have to talk about race also. Debbie Lippitz. There's a whole group of people that were so smart and so talented, but never made it. Sean Smith is another one. I mean, the most golden voice of any rock singer that I've ever heard. Mark Yarm. People are still in Seattle and amongst that scene, still super resentful of the way all the A&R men swooped in Seattle and tried to sign every band that was wearing Doc Martens and then proceeded to drop them once they didn't perform. When Breaking Waves returns, the Seattle music community is changed forever as darkness and a loss of innocence overwhelm the scene. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. For Soundgarden's first post-explosion album, they went in a different direction than the back-to-the-basics approach of In Utero and Versus. Released on March 8, 1994, Super Unknown was produced not by metal maven Terry Date like their last LP, but by Michael Beinhorn, who had helped the likes of Soul Asylum and Red Hot Chili Peppers move into the mainstream. There was no shortage of bone-crushingly heavy riffs and lupine howls, but there was more finesse and eclecticism at work than ever. The first single, Spoon Man, was as hooky as it was hard-charging, and it became Soundgarden's highest-charting single to date. But a few months later, the biggest song of their career came to the fore, the unabashedly drop-dead gorgeous neo-psychedelic ballad, Black Hole Sun. Soundgarden guitarist Kim Thiel. Chris wrote some songs, well, specifically Black Hole Sun, which I think we instantaneously recognize as, oh, this is like a hit. There's something about the melody that was appealing and catchy, but it wasn't candy, it wasn't bubblegum. There was something dark to it, but there's also something pleasant to it. And we knew that it would have its broadest palette if we did it. There's some hesitation because it's like, this has commercial potential that might be strange for a hard rock band, but we knew that Aerosmith had his dream on and Kiss had its Beth. And, Zeppelin had Stairway to Heaven, and we thought, this is going to get performed by Ben and me and Matt, and we're going to ensure that it sounds like us and has our identity and doesn't lean in a direction that would alienate our audience from from the, the band or alienate the band from its own material. It's like, we can do this song because we hear ourselves in it, and 
there are other songs like that. You know, Black Hole Sun's kind of mellower for us, it seems, until like until various guitar um, heavinesses and craziness happens that gives it this whole other character. Fell on Black Days, same thing. This is a little bit mellower, but it has a darkness. A lot of Chris's vision, especially with the band, with our band, but also in other bands, was was dark. You know, and and he had that kind of lyrical and melodic sense about him. When you when you have something that's a that's that might have appeal, this appeal that would address an audience other than the one you've built, you understand that you're expanding that audience, and you understand also that in doing so, you cannot risk losing yourself and your identity. And I think we had that understanding, we had those conversations, and we definitely made that song ours. Charles Cross. They had actually been around longer than any of the Seattle bands. You know, Alice in Chains, Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Soundgarden outdated them and had, had been a few albums before they were able to break through. I love Super Unknown, um, but I, I talked to the band extensively about the album and they were quite unhappy with the producer afterwards. So sometimes that's what happens with success. Yeah, it'll, it'll work this time. Hello. Hello, Jim. Yes. You're with uh, DGC Records, Nirvana's label, Director of Artists and Media Relations. That's right. Uh, what can you tell me about Kurt Cobain's condition? Kurt was brought to the hospital technically uh, in the morning Italian time in Rome, and he was in a coma, and the doctors say it was a mixture of medication and alcohol. They caused a coma. He had been suffering from severe influenza and fatigue and had to cancel two shows before that, so he was in a weakened state to begin with. And the alcohol and the pills put him over the edge and into the coma. Just four days before Super Unknown's release, a sad string of events was sent into motion when an overdose of alcohol and prescription drugs sent Kurt Cobain into a coma in Rome during a Nirvana tour. Thankfully, he recovered quickly but he popped up in the news again on the 18th when Courtney Love summoned the police to the couple's Seattle home, where a reportedly suicidal and armed Cobain had locked himself in a room. Guns and pills were confiscated by the officers. On the 24th, Love and Cobain's friends staged an intervention that led to him entering rehab, but he soon bolted from the facility and was out of pocket for days. On April 8th, he was found dead at his home, bearing a shotgun and a suicide note. An autopsy found heroin in his system and determined that he had been dead for three days. Kurt Donald Cobain had joined the infamous 27 Club, including rock stars like Jim Morrison, Jimi Hendrix, Brian Jones, and Janis Joplin, who all died at age 27. Nirvana fans worldwide mourned, but on April 10th in Seattle, it seemed like the whole city was gathered at the International Fountain to mark his passing. Debbie Libitz. I just remember hordes and hordes of people showing up at the Seattle Center around the International Fountain. You knew that there was darkness around the music, but, you know, we're talking about young people. He was 27. Yeah. It just felt very dark. And, you know, that's the magic age when all these big rock gods and goddesses died, right? Kathy Fennessy. That was just a mass mourning. 
like many people, I went to the memorial for him, which was strange, but then I don't think there was a way it couldn't have been. Just a very large group of people, but they weren't loud. It was pretty quiet. I mean, it really was a memorial. People were just there to be there. Cariocri. I don't know that there's so much surprise because you were hearing stories about his struggles with heroin and angst and all kinds of things, you know, like you kind of heard about it. Candlebox singer Kevin Martin. I hate to say it. I'm surprised it took as long as it did, you know, that he lasted as long as he did because we all kind of felt that it was coming. You know, the situation in Rome, I mean, for God's sakes, that wasn't the first sign of it. Charles Cross. I think those kind of media stamps that were put on Kurt really, in a way, were uh, a disservice to him, but they also were part of his frustration with fame. You know, Kurt and Nirvana were a great band, absolutely, and very talented, but he did not sign up to be the voice of a generation. And in a way, the, the idolatry, if you want to call it that, of popular culture I think does a disservice to creatives. And with Kurt, um, we can't blame his death on fame. There were many different things that were happening. But all I can say is, particularly for an addict in recovery, that kind of media attention didn't help. Kurt Cobain in an interview for KISW. My theory is, is that a band never creates the hype. It's always whoever's working for the band. They're the ones that do the hype deal. And then eventually a band gets slagged for not living up to its own hype when the band wasn't the driving force behind that hype in the first place. Daniel House. That was certainly the end of everything in a lot of ways. After Kurt died, it felt like we were suddenly left at sea with no anchor. I think for a lot of us, we felt like this was the ultimate culmination of all of the worst and darkest ways that being under that international microscope eventually just kind of left us. The understood hero or beacon or whatever you want to call it of this international scene called grunge was suddenly dead at age 27. It just felt like it was over. And in a lot of ways it was. With a level of irony that couldn't be scripted, the second album from Hole, the band fronted by Cobain's wife, Courtney Love, came out on April 12th and was titled Live Through This. The album's first single, Doll Parts, was chilling. A song of intense emotional pain that closes with love repeatedly wailing, someday you will ache like I ache. But for locals and close followers of the Seattle scene, Cobain's death was actually the conclusion of a one-two punch that began the previous July with the even more unthinkable death of git singer Mia Zapata. While her band was in the midst of working on its second album for CZ Records, Zapata was found raped and murdered in Seattle's Central District. Like Cobain, her death literally and figuratively took the life out of the Seattle scene. Carrie Ockrey. I think in your 20s you think you're immortal, and then one day your friend dies and everything changes. You don't think anything terrible would touch you, and then your friend's murdered. I think it changed everybody. Marco Collins. Everybody was mortified. The scene all revolved around a neighborhood called Capitol Hill. And there were clubs that people hung out at and burrito places that everybody ate at. It was edgy, but it wasn't that edgy. 
I never felt like it was unsafe to walk home at night. I think it started getting unsafe. There was an element of skinheads that came into the scene. It was terrible. When she died, we all lost this trust in the neighborhood. And it was devastating to the scene. She was loved. She was somebody that was an important part of our scene. So when that happened, it felt like we had lost our innocence. Daniel House. A lot of the community that we had started to really crumble. There was a lot of paranoia and mistrust. It didn't feel possible that it could be some random person. So I think in most people's minds, they thought it was somebody that we all knew, somebody in the scene. And so people started looking at each other with a very mistrustful sense of uncertainty. And people didn't feel comfortable anymore. And they didn't feel like they could trust people anymore. They were in the studio at the time recording their second record for me. Everything changed. It was like innocence lost. And we could never really fully recover from that. Kathy Faulkner. There was an innocence. There was a, we can do anything. We can go anywhere. And the world was our oyster. Losing Mia really hit our innocence. It was a kick in the gut. Marco Collins. I will say that her death inspired some really powerful things to happen. You always try to have tragedy have some meaning. There was women's defense classes set up and Pearl Jam backed them and a Home Alive project that was about getting women home from wherever, venues for free. And there were compilations. Pearl Jam contributed to a Home Alive compilation. There were benefit shows to make money for this organization to make sure that this never fucking happened again. So that tragedy empowered women. There were classes that taught women self-defense. And I'm proud to have been a part of that too. Seattle looked out for everyone. When Breaking Waves returns, the mounting pressure becomes too much to bear. Like a dying star, the Seattle scene finally collapses under its own weight and brings about the end of an era. Even though they'd only been together for four years, Pearl Jam were suddenly starting to seem like survivors of the scene. Part of their staying power came from staying true to their ideals. That's what led them into a now legendary 1994 battle with a corporate behemoth, American concert ticket monopoly Ticketmaster. Mark Yarm. The dispute was over these onerous fees that Ticketmaster would charge. It was a good fight. They were on the right side of history. I mean, they had to give in eventually because it was just too big a corporate monolith, I think. Kathy Faulkner. They didn't want to see their fans having their musical experience compromised where security was being hard on them or, or Ticketmaster was charging $20 service charges on a $12 ticket or, you know, in general terms. Debbie Lippitz. They put their money where their mouth is. They just totally usurped Ticketmaster. And it was a little tough. You get a technical issue, and Europe shits creek. And it was a, an extreme expense traveling across 
like a caravan, like traveling cities, because obviously, you know, they couldn't play Ticketmaster venues. So they had to create their own venues and they would go to places that didn't have any infrastructure and create a city. I don't know from a business standpoint if that made sense, but they used their power in a really good way. And that band has continued to give back as they've grown up. Jeff Trisler. You can only admire them. They were fighting a fight they probably knew they couldn't win, but they were carrying the flag and fighting for their fans. They sensed something that wasn't right, and it forced that company, Ticketmaster, to change a lot of the ways they do business. In Pearl Jam 1, if that's the right word, even more credibility with their fan base, these guys care about us. Immediately after the Pearl Jam stance, Ticketmaster then, as an entity of their own, they just made adjustments to try to be more artist-friendly and adjust their service charges. Mark Yarm is more cynical about the outcome, but equally impressed at the effort. They lost that battle. I mean, they tried to do their own tour, which did not go particularly well. And obviously, Ticketmaster's still here charging us up the ass. So, <laughs> you know, it's like it didn't really ultimately do anything. I mean, it's an interesting footnote seeing Jeff and Stone from Paul Jam testifying before Congress. It was ultimately a failed battle, but a, a noble battle. Meanwhile, something more dismaying than improper business practices was taking its toll on rock and roll. The attack of the Nirvana Bees. It was increasingly seeming like every other new band that popped up sounded suspiciously similar to a certain stable of Northwesterners. Daniel House felt it most keenly close to home. We used to actually listen to all of the demos we received. And after all of that exploded, suddenly 90% of all the demos, everything was like Alice in Chains Soundgarden, Nirvana, or Pearl Jam. Every Monday, we'd start out our week like listening to demos, and we'd just pass them around the office, and we'd spend like an hour. And once all that started, we actually had three separate boxes, and there was a Soundgarden box, there was a Nirvana box, and there was a Pearl Jam box. And usually they'd get like 30 seconds, like, yep, Pearl Jam, boom, toss. Kathy Fennessy. There were bands outside of Seattle that had the so-called Seattle sound, like Silverchair in Australia. Some people would hear them on the radio and think it was Nirvana or think it was Soundgarden. Mark Yarm. There was Bush from the UK. There was Silverchair from Australia. There was Stone Temple Pilots from San Diego. At the time, they were seen as aping bands like Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Nirvana. Marco Collins. Well, it became obvious when the second wave of grunge bands started coming our way. When Seven Mary Three and Bush and Live and Stone Temple Pilots and all of these bands started coming out, that things were getting watered down a little bit. I still like a lot of those bands, but when the third tier grunge bands happened, that's when I was like, this scene is dead. This scene is over. Stop it. This is ridiculous now. While the imitators were multiplying, the originators kept on innovating. Between late 94 and mid-96, lovers of the true Seattle scene got Pearl Jam's Vitology, Soundgarden's Down on the Upside, Mud Honey's My Brother the Cow, Screaming Trees' Dust, and Alice in Chains' self-titled third album. But some of these bands were nearing the end of their tether, and others had to hunker down to figure out a way forward. For Pearl Jam, part of the answer was found in pulling away from the music biz machinery and taking back control. 
whether that meant refusing to make music videos or overseeing an extensive series of official bootleg concert recordings. Debbie Lipitz. What I loved about them is that they were always pushing the envelope. I love what they did with the bootleg series, bootlegging every single show. There had to be a hundred of those. I don't know exactly how many, but you know, they just put the heart back in. They just put the everyday guy back into rock and roll. I don't think they ever lost their soul. I mean, they grew up, but yeah, I love watching the evolution of that band. Kathy Faulkner. There was the anger and coping with success phase being put on the face of Time magazine. That was a pivotal moment in the band completely saturating the marketplace and Eddie and maybe even the band as a whole realizing that that's not what they signed up for. Mark Yarm. Talking to someone like Chris Cornell about the whole issue of fame he pointed out to me that Nirvana didn't have to put out In Utero, didn't have to put out those videos. There was, I'm sure, intense pressure to do that. But he said, look at the example of Pearl Jam, who were maligned by some of sellouts, but they pulled back. They stopped making videos. They stopped doing press. They stopped doing all this stuff for their own sanity. And in his view, that's why Pearl Jam basically went on to thrive, whereas Nirvana imploded. Michael Goldstone signed Pearl Jam to Epic Records. I think they had the experience and the instinct to not allow people to to run faster with it than it was meant to run. I think they had restraint. I think that they made choices that at the time felt short-sighted, but have proved to be the reasons why they've had the longevity that they've had. Soundgarden wasn't so lucky. They went out on a high note with 1996's Down on the Upside. But by the following year, they had split up. Their drummer, Matt Cameron, would eventually say that the band was eaten up by the business. Kim Thile. I think their responses to the success and the constant busyness and work that might have affected us in ways that had us dysfunction as individuals, you know, differently. I know that I withdrew and kind of backed away a little bit just to secure for myself, perhaps creatively or emotionally, just some distance from the constant thing. I don't know if the industry did that as much as just some of the volume of work expected, but then also the social expectations. You need to be someone for other people. You need to be someone for the record company. You need to be someone for your fans, for your, for your girlfriend, for your, for your parents. The expectations and the demands increase. And at some point, you could just pull back or throw punches or whatever just to get everything away from you. And I think a little bit of that was happening, definitely. And it's enough that the car had to be pulled over. and Somebody wasn't driving at some point, so... I mean, there's, there's still so many ideas and so many songs. The band had every reason to continue. Chris made this comment a few times. He said, we just should have taken a break. We just should have said, stop, leave us alone, taking a break, and then come back later. But that was that. 
Mark Yarm. I think there was definite battles within all the bands over art versus commerce. I mean, with somebody like Chris Cornell, who was a beautiful looking man being treated as like a sex symbol, but also trying to be perceived as a credible artist. I mean, obviously he played that up. I mean, he took off his shirt all the time and he looked good doing it, which was a point of contention and sometimes, you know, subtle mockery in the Seattle scene. But he knew how to play it. A lot of internal strife and tension and things. I mean, they've been at it for a long time. So it just kind of reached a breaking point, I think. By that point, they had Black Hole Sun, which was an immense hit. It was a Beatlesque pop hit. So they were a pop band now, like it or not, despite their grunge bona fides. That song in particular really elevated them to that level. So I can only imagine the business side stresses of having a huge hit like that. Kevin Martin. I got to know Chris Cornell when I was around 16, 17, 18, and he was a really sensitive soul and quiet and somewhat shy. Being thrown in the limelight as he was because he was a sex symbol and he was on every fucking grunge magazine cover and always with the hair and no shirt. I mean, that can't sit well with anyone that doesn't want it that way. Karyakri. It wasn't necessarily fun in the end, right? Like joyful. Kim Thale doesn't want to be in front of people. He doesn't like that. The success doesn't equate joy and good, especially if you're not prepared for it, especially if you haven't asked yourself, do you understand what this entails? And do you really want that? Or do you like that? Or does that work for you? Because it's going to entail this. Daniel House. I've always just imagined that that was the reason why, that they just kind of hit a point where they weren't doing what they wanted to do anymore. That's certainly a perfectly good reason to quit. Seattle's hottest properties had already begun splintering into spin-offs and supergroups and would continue to do so for years to come. Mad Season featuring members of Screaming Trees, Alice in Chains, Pearl Jam, and The Walkabouts. Audio Slave was basically Rage Against the Machine plus Chris Cornell. Duff McKagan gave the Scott Weiland-fronted Velvet Revolver some Seattle cred. And of course, one of the biggest rock bands of the post-grunge era was originally regarded by many as just a Nirvana cast-off, a little group called Foo Fighters. By 1997, Soundgarden was no more. Nirvana was long gone. Alice in Chains had put out their final album with Lane Staley and gone on hiatus. Screaming Trees had released their swan song and were on borrowed time. Even hometown heroes and grunge OGs like Tad and Seven Year Bitch were never to record again. Meanwhile, third waivers like Australia's Silverchair and England's Bush had multi-platinum number one albums. At the time, the sands were shifting. Radiohead was releasing OK Computer, the Chemical Brothers were making the world safe for techno with Dig Your Own Hole. And rappers like the Wu-Tang Clan were making hip-hop bigger than ever. And the scene that gave raw, rebellious, guitar-driven rock the keys to the kingdom was dead. But the story of Seattle as a music hub was far from over. Breaking Waves, Seattle. Next on Breaking Waves. The scene is dead. Long live the scene. A proud new generation of Seattle music rises from the ashes of 90s grunge. You have been listening to Breaking Waves, Seattle. Breaking Waves was produced for Odyssey by Osiris Media. For Odyssey, the executive producers of Breaking Waves are Tim Murphy and Corey Podolsky. The creative directors are Dave Richards, Leslie Scott, and Ryan Castle. 
For Osiris Media, the executive producers are RJB, Kirsten Cluthy, and Brad Stratton. The show was produced by Brian Brinkman and written by Jim Allen. Edit and mix by Brad Stratton and narration by Ryan Castle. To find more great content like Breaking Waves, Seattle, please download the Odyssey app on your mobile device or visit Odyssey. That's A-U-D-A-C-Y dot com. <laughs>